There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied, and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it, that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. The other night, uh, my son Zach and his wife Jess were over at the house when the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams, came on television. It's really a weird movie. Costner, he plays a character, he plays the Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella. And one day, Ray is out in the fields, he hears a mysterious voice tell him to plow under his corn and build a baseball diamond. It whispers, if you build it, he will come. Well, eventually, late great ball players from a bygone era, they do come. They materialize as they walk out of the netherworld just beyond the cornstalks. These former baseball players see Ray's field as a dream come true. 
Well, several situations occur in the movie that cause Ray to think that he has fulfilled his mission. But there is really more to the story than even Ray knows. Now, I'm watching this movie, Zach and Jess come over, when all of a sudden, Zach starts lecturing me on why this movie is laced with New Age theology. Why this is a terrible movie. My son, the apologist. He just can't believe that Pastor Dad is enjoying such a confused movie. And I applaud his orthodoxy. And if this movie was taken as a theological treatise, he would be right. But it's just a fictional tale. And I overlook its bad theology to focus on its underlying plot. For it is the story about a strained relationship between a father and a son. It's about life's regrets and about the rare opportunity for redemption. In the final scene, one of the ballplayers stays behind. It's Ray's dad. It's his dad before Ray was even born, before life beat him down. Last time Ray saw his dad, he was a rebellious teenager who had left home after an ugly fight. Ray's entire adult life has been lived under the shadow of regret. But now the voice makes sense. If you build it, he will come. Ray and his dad have an opportunity to make things right. And there in an Iowa cornfield, mysterious forces work together in mysterious ways to redeem a family and to resurrect unfulfilled dreams. And whenever I watch that final scene of Ray and his dad playing catch, I cry like a baby. I bawl like a woman. I'm telling you, I just weep. And I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm such a sap. I mean, every time that movie gets to that final point, I start weeping. Why? Because I've lived long enough now to have a few regrets of my own. And I've seen how stubbornness can come between me and people that I love. And I've watched life beat down hope and sever friendships and I relish opportunities for redemption. I've now raised three sons who for the most part have all gone their own way. And as hard as I've tried to be a good dad, I still have some regrets. In fact, this fall has been particularly tough on me. For 27 years, I've poured my life into my kids and now they're all gone. My last born is off to college. While Mac was at home over the Christmas break, he asked me if I wanted to go down to the park and play some catch. Right out of Field of Dreams. I was so excited. I missed my kids, and this is the kind of stuff I miss the most. We had tossed the ball back and forth twice. A total of two times. When all of a sudden, I missed one. The ball rolls all the way across the parking lot and tumbles right down the sewer. That's not how it happens in the movies. And I was so mad, so frustrated, I threw my glove down in the back of my truck. Max said, Dad, chill. He was sort of embarrassed over my emotional meltdown. But, you know, I told him, I said, man, I miss you, son. I, I, I just wanted us to have a catch. Max had no idea what I was going through. 
And he won't until he has a son of his own. Here's the truth. Life is not always a field of dreams. Life can get hard. How many times have you watched your dreams roll down the sewer? Often our heartache is the direct result of our own poor choices. Sometimes the victim of circumstance, we become the victim of circumstances that are beyond our control. Did you know that even obedience to God doesn't guarantee that your life will pan out the way you wanted? We soon discover that God's plan often differs from our own. And yet here is the Christian's hope. There is a mysterious force called God's providence. And it's at work in mysterious ways. And it works in order to redeem us. God wants to redeem our lives and redeem our relationships. You see, the God of the Bible specializes in restoring broken relationships and rebuilding lives and reigniting hope. God likes to make dreams come true. I love John Piper's thoughts on God's providence. He writes, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubling road. And the point of biblical stories like Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just knowing our heads, but feel in our bones that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, ultimately, God's purpose is best. The will of God is superior to any dream come true. And providence is the means from getting us from here to there. Well, this is what the book of Ruth is all about. It's about a field of dreams. In a barley field outside Bethlehem, God saves a family on the verge of annihilation. He works graciously to restore hope that's been shattered by rebellion. And it all foreshadows what will happen later in Bethlehem, years later, when a child is born. And through that child, God redeems a world broken by sin. Remember chapter 1? Remember chapter 1 from last week? Famine plagued Bethlehem. And when it did, Elimelech loaded up his family and took off for greener grass. He moved to Moab. But Moab was a pagan place. It was a lost land full of idolatrous people. For a Jew like Elimelech to move from the promised land to Moab was to backtrack. Instead of trusting God, he relied on his own wisdom. He slid backward. Sadly, Elimelech only saw what he wanted to escape, the famine there in Bethlehem. He never looked ahead at what life would be like in the land of unbelief. In essence, he shipwrecked his family. They were an island of faith in a sea of idolatry. And so, when his two sons wanted to marry, their only options were Moabite girls. One son married Orpah, the other son married Ruth. An irony of all ironies, Elimelech moved to Moab to save his family, yet shortly after he arrives, he dies. Then to make matters worse, his two sons also die. And his poor wife Naomi is left to deal with enormous grief. 
Well, after burying the men in her life, Naomi and one of her daughter-in-laws, Ruth, they packed their bags and they moved back to old little town of Bethlehem. These two women arrive homeless and indigent. Naomi moans her plight in chapter 1, verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty. In fact, when the Bethlehem Women's Club come out to greet their old friend, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, she tells them, do not call me Naomi. There's nothing pleasant about my life. Call me Mara or bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. After a decade in Moab, Mrs. Pleasant is now a bitter old lady. Though Naomi was too depressed to appreciate the pickup, there was one blessing she did receive while in Moab. A noble daughter-in-law named Ruth. In fact, Ruth converts to faith in Naomi's God. She says to her mother-in-law in chapter 1, Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And God's providence will use the faithfulness of Ruth to restore Naomi's family to prominence and to end up making all their dreams come true. Well, chapter 2, verse 1 introduces us to a new character in the story. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Here the plot thickens. Enter Boaz. Boaz was a Hebrew hunk. Think of a Jewish Matthew McGonaghy, maybe. The name Boaz means in him is strength. Boaz was a strong man, a manly man. He was strong and brave and handsome. And ladies, he was wealthy. Boaz was a large landowner. He was a barley baron. And he was single. Boaz was a bachelor. Think of Boaz as the Hebrew heartthrob. Speaking of which, did you hear about the young man? He said to his sweetheart, he said, Darling, he says, I'm not as wealthy as Gerald Green or as good looking as Gerald. And I don't have a mansion or a Mercedes or a yacht like Gerald Green. But baby, I love you with all my heart. The girl looked at him and she replied, she says, Well, I love you too. But would you tell me more about this Gerald Green? <laughs> Well, Boaz was Gerald Green. Now, I hope you all appreciate how thoroughly I research my sermons. I did a Google search this past week on back issues of People magazine from the year 1350 B.C. And guess who was ranked Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor? Boaz. Many a girl would have loved to have Boaz as a beau. And what makes his arrival in the story so intriguing is that we're told he's a relative. Boaz was what the Israelis called a goel, or a kinsman redeemer. According to Israeli culture, it was the obligation of the nearest family member to marry a widowed wife and sire a child to preserve his brother's limb on the family tree. The Hebrews called it the law of the liverite, or levir means brother-in-law. And Deuteronomy 25 details the custom, if you'd like to go back and read it. Chapter 2 begins, there was a relative 
of Naomi's husband. And this tips us off. God is up to something. A miracle of restoration is on the horizon. Hey, one more thought here. When Ruth left Moab, you remember she thought she was sacrificing her best opportunity for remarriage in order to stay loyal to her mother-in-law. Apparently not. You know, it's just like God to reward someone who puts commitment ahead of convenience and who values loyalty above self-interest and who refuses to opt for the easy way out. Ruth forfeited privilege in order to remain true to a principle and before we're done, God is going to bless her, reward her with the man of her dreams. Well, chapter 2, verse 1, is inserted for the reader. Boaz has yet to cross the mind of either Ruth or Naomi. These girls have come to town dirt, dirt poor. And now they're getting hungry. You've got two stomachs growling in Bethlehem. Verse 2. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. Now Ruth has no idea who that him might be. She's just joined the labor pool. She's working her assigned field. And Naomi said to her, go my daughter. And then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now understand how welfare worked in ancient Israel. Rather than someone handing you a check or food stamps, the needy person had to put forth an effort. When the crop was harvested, the landowner was not allowed to strip the field bare. He was required to leave behind a little for the poor. But it was up to the poor to enter the fields behind the reapers and then glean or gather up these leftovers. This is what Ruth does. She hopes to take home to Naomi a little barley. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And notice the wording, she happened. <laughs> Ruth had just gone out with the day laborers. She had no idea who owned the field in which she worked, but God did. The author's wording here is deliberate. He uses this phrase in a tongue-in-cheek manner in order to grab our attention. For in light of God's sovereignty, nothing ever just happens. As we discussed last week, God is in control over all our circumstances. I love Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There is no such thing as luck or fate or chance. Every roll of the dice, every bounce of the football, Falcons fans, is overseen by God. The Jewish rabbis, they put it this way, coincidence is not a kosher word. It's been said God's ways are behind the scenes, but He moves all the scenes that He is behind. Ruth is unaware at this point, but God is directing her steps. Oh, it reminds me of the little boy who was climbing this tall tree and he was leaping from limb to limb when all of a sudden one of the limbs broke out from under him and he started to fall. He was pummeling to the earth when someone heard him scream, God, help me! At that very moment, his belt got caught on a branch and it stopped his fall. He sighed. Well, never mind now, Lord, my pants just got caught on a branch. We can be so blind, can't we? We can be so oblivious to the obvious. 
to God's gracious maneuvers in our lives. We cry out to Him for help when we need Him. And then when He comes through, what do we do? We chalk it up to luck or chance or even our own wherewithal. Shame on us. How we should give God praise for His wonderful providence. Verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. Apparently Boaz was not only a good guy, he was a good boss. He loved to bless his employees and they loved to return the blessing. One day, Boaz, he leaves the home office in downtown Bethlehem for a field trip. I mean, harvest is crunch time in the barley business. He wants to do a little on-site inspection, but it's not the work that catches his eye. It's one of the workers. For then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? Now I'm sure Ruth was one of many gleaners. There were probably dozens of women that day in the fields of Boaz. But Ruth is the lady who grabs his attention. He turns to his assistant and he asks, Who's the new girl? Who's that babe out in the barley? Understand the story of Ruth is a romance novel of epic proportion. Why? Boaz is the barley baron. He's the lord of the harvest. Ruth is a Gentile woman who's hungry and hurting and a stranger to the things of God. But they are both so much more. In a sense, you and I are Ruth. We come from a pagan land. We, we've once served empty idols. We are now grieved and poor and hungry. That's what we were when we came to our senses and returned to God. And guess who this Boaz is who saw us? Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He's the one who's strong and winsome and wealthy. He's the one that's full of grace and blessing. Jesus is a Gerald Green. And guess what? Jesus was born a man, which makes him our relative. He's even in a position to save us. Here's a most eligible bachelor who woos a Gentile bride. And just as Boaz is going to find a way in this story to marry Ruth and redeem her family, Jesus has found a way to redeem our lives, to make our dreams a reality. Oh, the love story between Ruth and Boaz paints a picture of how Jesus redeems us. This is why the barley fields of Bethlehem are not too far from where we live. And I love this first parallel. Before Boaz says a word to Ruth, before they even meet, hey, before Ruth even knows that Boaz, a Boaz exists, he sees her. He spots her. In fact, he picks her out of the crowd and he takes the initiative and he inquires of Ruth. Do you realize this is how you came to Jesus' attention? You know, some of us think the first time we met Jesus was when we got down on our knees and repented of our sin, surrendered our lives, and embraced Him as Lord. That's not the first time Jesus saw you. He had His eyes on you long before you came to Him. Long before. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Can you believe it? And do you know what that means? That means that when Jesus died on the cross, He had you in mind. You were in His heart. You know, when I was born, my dad loved me, no doubt about it. 
But when you think about it, he didn't really have a choice. I mean, they didn't let him browse the maternity ward to pick out the one he wanted. No, the nurse handed me over and he was stuck. But my dad loved me just the same. God, on the other hand, he did have a choice. He knew all the mistakes I'd make. He saw my sin. He knew my history in advance, and yet he still chose me. Isn't that incredible? Hey, this is why Boaz is the perfect type of Jesus. How do you think Ruth looked when Boaz first spotted her? Ladies, how do you look after you've spent the day working out in the garden? (laughs) Ruth had been working in the fields. She was hot and sweaty. She stunk. Her hair was nappy. She probably had it pulled back in one of those raunchy-looking ponytails. Ruth had dirt smudges on her face. She wore a work skirt. Her hands were cut and bleedy from rummaging in the stalks. Ruth was a mess. Hey, when she saw Boaz drive up in the company limousine, she didn't even have time to run to the restroom to freshen up or do her hair, paint on some of that lipstick. I mean, Ruth looked like the backside of a muddy shovel. That's what she looked like. And yet Boaz loved her anyway. He saw her and he loved her. And this is how Jesus sees us. He loves us just the same. Verse 6 tells us, So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Boaz's superintendent was impressed. Apparently Ruth was a hard worker. Well, then Boaz said to Ruth, he's obviously gone out to meet her by now. He said, you will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Now, now Boaz isn't sure where this relationship's going to go, but he's seen enough not to let Ruth get away. And so he tells her not to wander off. She needs to stay put in his field. Stay with Boaz, baby. It'll be good for you. And then he assures her, Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? Here is the first sexual harassment policy in corporate history right here. The boss has already made sure that his minions know that this girl is off limits. And not only protection, notice Boaz also orders provision. He says, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Usually a mere gleaner like Ruth would fetch water for the hired hands. But here Boaz, he flips it around. He orders his workers to draw plenty of water for Ruth. Boy, add up all that Boaz does for Ruth. I mean, he makes her one of his own gleaners, a privilege. He orders hands-off Ruth, protection. She can drink from the water that the workers draw from the well, provision. You think about it, Ruth has hit the jackpot. Yet there's just one catch. In order to benefit from all these blessings, she can glean only from Boaz's field. If Ruth wanders off to another man's farm... If she starts to glean from other fields, she forfeits Boaz's privilege and protection and provision. 
This is what the New Testament means when it tells us to abide in Christ. As Christians, we too have been given abundant blessing. We're gleaners in God's field. We're secure in Christ. He satisfies our deepest thirst with living water, His living water. We too are given privilege and protection and provision, but there's one condition. Stay put. The object of our faith has to be exclusively Jesus. He has to be Lord, Lord of all. We have to put all our hope in Him. We have to trust our dreams and our needs to Him alone. Glean in another field and you forfeit the blessings that have been earmarked for you. Don't be tempted by that greener grass. Don't be lured away by the lying wolf in sheep's clothing. Don't doze off and drift beyond God's borders. Remain steadfast, unmovable. Look to Jesus alone to meet your needs. Go to Him for whatever you need, whether it be love or strength or joy or peace or wisdom or courage. Learn to lean on Jesus. Glean only from His field and you'll always be satisfied. Well, then in verse 10, Ruth responds to Boaz's obvious show of generosity. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? In typical oriental fashion, she bows low to the person in authority. Ruth showed Boaz the customary token of respect. But the question she asks him indicates some street smarts. Ruth is a smart cookie. She's been around the block a time or two. She doesn't know Boaz from the man in the moon. She's never met him before. And Ruth is from Moab, where unscrupulous men don't hesitate to butter up a woman just to take her to bed. She needs to know what Boaz's true intentions really are. She needs to know, is he a Boaz or a Bozo? Which reminds me of a riddle. Ready for a riddle? First riddle of the new year. Here it is. What was Boaz before he met Ruth? Answer, ruthless. <laughs> ruthless. You asked for it. I gave you a choice. Ruthless. And let me suggest that every single woman should assume the same about a man until he proves otherwise. Men can be ruthless. Single ladies, you need to ask men the same question that Ruth asked Boaz. Why are you favoring me? Hey, I like candy, but I'm not a sucker. I love the flowers, but I'm no blooming idiot. Hey, it's a girl's right to know a man's intentions. You see, often a guy, often the girl is thinking lifetime, while the guy is thinking just good time. Ladies, assume the guy is ruthless until he proves you can trust him. And notice what causes Ruth to question Boaz's motive. She says, why have you taken notice of me since I am a foreigner? I mean, in the dating game, Ruth doesn't really have much going for her, does she? She's probably adding this up in her mind. Why would Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor be interested in me, a widow from Moab? 
She's thinking, I'm a foreigner. I, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a virgin. I'm, I'm older than the other girls. I'm poor and needy and dirty. I've got calluses on my hands. And to top it all off, man, I'm carrying some heavy baggage. Old Naomi back home. I mean, I come with a bitter old lady for a mother-in-law. Why would Ruth is suspicious. Why would Boaz be interested in her? And you know, I have asked myself the same question a million zillion times about my relationship with Jesus. Why in the world, Lord, would you love me enough to die that hideous death you didn't deserve for sins that were not your fault? Why in the world, Lord, do you love me that much? And if you've ever asked that question, let me just encourage you, put your little pride to rest because there's only one answer to that question and that is God's amazing grace. You didn't deserve it and neither did I. For all eternity, we'll be getting the answer to that question. Lord, why in the world did you love us? You know, so often we ask God the wrong question. God, why was I laid off? God, why did I get cancer? God, why did my spouse die? Why is my child ill? We bombard God with questions about situations that seem illogical to us. But to be consistent, why don't you ask God one more question of which there is no logical explanation. God, why did you love me enough to send your only son to die in my place? The answer to that question might end all the other questions. For when you understand the grace of God, you find that it's sufficient for every situation. Verse 11, And so Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come from refu for refuge. Good answer, Boaz. It's good motives. He saw past Ruth's messy appearance and soul pedigree. He spotted a woman with inner beauty. He was attracted to her integrity and to her character. You know, over the years, I've had lots of single men and single women come up to me and say, Pastor Sandy, will you pray for me? Will you please ask God to give me a godly spouse? But you know, I can't pray that prayer for some people because if God gave them a godly spouse, it wouldn't be right for the godly person to marry them. They're not too godly themselves. They need, to get, they need to work on that. They need to use this time in their lives to prepare their hearts. Boaz was quite a catch, but Ruth was the kind of bait to hook him. And then Ruth said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Boaz had made Ruth to feel like she belonged. And you know a romance is heating up when the guy takes the girl to dinner. That's what happens next in verse 14. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Why did she keep some back? She remembered Naomi. 
she was hungry too. I picture Ruth at dinner and she's allowing a few of the morsels to just sort of drop out of her, her hands and into her lap and she's, she's covering them up. She's planning to smuggle them home to her mother-in-law. Well, it was a gracious gesture for Boaz to invite Ruth to his table. Jews were usually forbidden to break bread with Gentiles. Eating together was a sign of oneness. An invitation to, to lunch, to a meal, spoke of acceptance. And notice the two elements here used to demonstrate Boaz's inclusion of Ruth. Bread and vinegar, or sour wine. Notice the bread and the wine. Whenever we take communion, bread and wine speak to us of our Lord's acceptance of us. His broken body, His blood spilt. The work has been done. The price has been paid. Now God offers us His acceptance. And like faith, we eat and we drink. And we're satisfied. As with Ruth, we're satisfied. When you feed at the Lord's table, expect to experience a deep fulfillment in your heart. At His table, you fill up on God's love and acceptance. And when she rose up to glean, this is now after dinner, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. I mean, this was an extraordinary blessing, an opportunity. Rather than glean from the leftovers, Ruth is now given first crack at the actual harvest. She's no longer grabbing are grubbing through trampled down grain, she's now walking off with the very best of the crop. This is a blessing. And as if that wasn't enough, verse 16, also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. You get the feeling Mr. Boaz is smitten with a maiden named Ruth? Here he pours it on. I mean, let there be no doubt in Ruth's mind. Boaz has a crush. She's not only invited to harvest the best of the crop, but the other harvesters are ordered to make it easy on her. They're, they're supposed to drop grain from the bundles in her path, right, right at her feet. So all she has to do is just reach down and pick it up. Boaz is making it easy on Ruth. And you know, our Lord is just as lavish in His love toward us. He loves to drop little blessings you know, right at your feet. And if you have eyes to see them, how they'll delight your heart and how they pave your way with blessing. Have you spent any time with Him lately? Have you studied His Word? If you do, you'll walk away with treasures left there just on purpose for you. He'll speak words especially for you. Promises will jump off the page straight into your heart. The Holy Spirit will personalize God's blessings. He'll drop these treasures for you right in your path. But you have to be willing to see them. Pick them up. Not walk right past them. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephoth. I mean a full bushel of barley. We'll finish here. Then she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. Ruth shares her meal with Naomi. Notice she saved the leftovers. And there are always leftovers at God's table. You'll find more than enough when you bring your needs to Jesus. He is more blessing than you need. He is more love than you can handle. 
But what should we do with the leftovers? Should we hoard them? Or save them? Or waste them? No, the answer is what Ruth did. She shared them. And this is why you and I need to take the abundance of God's grace and we need to spread it around to everyone we come in contact with. Spread the bread. That's our job. Let the love of Jesus overflow to the folks in your life. Well, here's what happens next. Naomi is so impressed with all this barley. I mean, a full bushel full. It's obvious to her that Ruth has, has found a serious suitor. And then she hears he's a relative. This gets her even more excited. She realizes that Ruth has hooked a husband. And next week, Naomi is going to help her reel him in. So read chapter 3 and join us next week. Lord, thank you for your word this morning and for your encouragement, for the treasures that you bring. Lord, for the little things that, blessings that you lay along our path. Lord, how you drop out things purposefully, especially for us. And you have little blessings, you have little things that you like to give us, Lord, that will delight our hearts if we'll just slow down enough to listen and to glean and to receive. Thank you for your blessing today. Continue your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.